We're in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts, and we're studying God's Word. On Sunday night, this is the way we do. We, we take one of these worksheets, we study the Word of God together. I think this um, study tonight will be um, a thrilling one. It's just been an exciting thing as I've kind of worked on this a little bit. There's no one more persistent than the Lord. The person He sets out to win, He wins. The person that He pursues, He is successful in His pursuit. There's no one more persistent than the Lord. I was reading the other day about these heat-seeking missiles that we have in our defense. And I'm told that the enemy fires their missile and we fire ours, and our missile seeks out their missile. And the way it seeks it out is to seek out the heat. And this article said that these heat-seeking missiles will go all the way up into the exhaust to find those missiles and destroy them. In a real sense, God is a spiritual heat-seeking missile. And He's willing to go to every length in order not to destroy, but to save. There is no one more persistent than God. And nobody can appreciate this any more than Francis Thompson. Francis Thompson was a loser. He was a real zero. He was a failure. He started out to be a Roman Catholic priest, and he failed. He decided to be a medical doctor, and he failed. In every field of endeavor, he was a total failure. He couldn't get along with his family, and so he had to leave home. He hit the streets of London. He became a vagabond, a tramp. He soon was addicted to opium. He lived off of garbage. He didn't have a shirt to put on his back. He said himself that he was in the pit of squalor and nobody wanted him but God. And God pursued this man in the slums of London till he found him. And he won this vagabond of a man, this void of a man. And out of that conversion experience, Francis Thompson wrote what some literary critics call the greatest English ode ever written. That's saying a lot when you consider Milton and Shelley and Coleridge. His was a mystic poem about God, and in this strange ode, he pictures God as the hound of heaven in pursuit of Francis Thompson, and one day he treed the fox. And I want to read just a part of this magnificent ode that he wrote. I've quoted it many times. I just want to read a part of it. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the ways. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of my tears I hid from him. And under running laughter from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy they beat. And a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. How little worthy of any love thou art. Whom wilt thou find to love ignoble thee, save me, save only me. All which I took from thee I did but take, not, from thy, not for thy harms, but just that thou mightst seek it in my arms. 
all which thy child's mistake fancies are lost, I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. Halts by me that footfall is my gloom after all, shade of his hand outstretched caressingly. Magnificent work. But that strange, beautiful story of Francis Thompson is not unique. There are many of you tonight who would stand to testify that the hound of heaven pursued you and his strong feet followed after you down the labyrinthine ways of your mind until he found you. And 17 centuries before that hound of heaven pursued Francis Thompson, he was baying at the heels of another man. He was a bigoted, narrow Jewish zealot. He was a man who literally despised the name Jesus of Nazareth. He was hell-bent on destroying every Christian. Some say he was an ugly man, uh, unattractive. One biographer said that Saul of Tarsus was a little scrawny, skinny man, bow-legged, hunched back with a long crook for a nose. He was an ugly, mean, vicious man, hell-bent on murder. And he decided he would destroy every Christian he could get his hands on, both men and women. In the 8th chapter of the book of Acts, chapter verse 1, says that he even consented to the murder of a man who had not had a just and fair trial. He was a vicious murderer. And if there was a list in Judea of the men least likely to be used of God, he would have been the head of the list. But the hound of heaven was after him. This man, Saul of Tarsus, had a plan. Chapter 9, verse 1 is the beginning of it. He decided that he would get some warrants for the arrest of, Jewish, of, of Christians, men and women. And he would go in the cover of night and he'd break down doors and he'd run, rush in and he'd haul these Christians away, bound to Jerusalem. And he got these warrants and this was part of his plan to go into the synagogues on Sunday morning where people worship God where they'd be gathered together in large numbers and he'd come rushing in where people were bent on worship and he would gather them up, men and women, and carry them away to Jerusalem bound. That was his plan. But God had a plan of his own. The hound of heaven had a pursuit in mind and he had a conversion in mind. And so chapter 9, verse 3 describes that marvelous conversion. And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him. I want you to get this picture. Here was this man headed to Damascus. Just before he got into the city limits, he was arrested by God. And there are two phenomenon that took place there on that road to Damascus, a light, a blinding light, and a voice. A light suddenly flashed from heaven. If you saw close encounters of a third kind, you might get an idea of that light. Later, the apostle Paul was giving his testimony. He said this light came at noon. It was, it was a light that was so bright, it, in, it eclipsed the sun and it enveloped this man. And there was also a voice from heaven and there was a dialogue. Now watch this dialogue, verse 4. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
tell you something. If there is ever a verse that identifies Jesus with His people, that's the verse. He is perfectly identified with us. I want you to know this, that before ever you can lay hold, you can do harm to God's children, whether by your words or by your actions, before you can ever do harm to God's children, you have to go through Jesus first. For He is perfectly identified with us. That was vividly and poignantly plain in His baptism. In fact, John the Baptist couldn't understand why Jesus wanted to be baptized. Why He said, I'm not even worthy to latch your shoes. But Jesus prevailed because He wanted to be perfectly identified with us. And He is. Now notice... And he said, Who art thou, sir? I'm, I'm, let, me show, let me tell you something. Doesn't matter how powerful you are, when you see blinding lights and hear strange voices, you're going to, talk, you're going to start saying, Sir. You know? And so he said, Who are you, Lord? Who are you, sir? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, I don't know what that verse does to you, but it just reaches out and speaks to me. I mean, it's that heart-throbbing moment when a man comes face to face with Jesus. Now I want you to notice that up until this point every ounce of this man's energy was directed to denying Jesus. And every moment of his time was spent denying that Jesus was, the, was alive and the Son of God. Everything he did was directed to the denial of Jesus. But all of a sudden he encounters him one on one. I think you can remember that time. Sometimes it's when junior boys and girls come into a worship service and they're kind of giggling like we do sometimes, right? And all of a sudden, all things change and all of a sudden we just feel that, that feeling that comes and, and in that moment we know that we're face-to-face, one-on-one with God. Sometimes it comes as we are a little older, but it is a dramatic moment when a man stands face to face with the reality that he is confronting the very one, the very thing he's always denied. And there was Saul of Tarsus, one-on-one with Jesus, and everything he'd ever done before was to deny him. Who are you, sir? He said, I am Jesus. Head up, one-on-one. Somebody tries to describe what, uh, the, what Saul of Tarsus uh, thought about Jesus. Let me read that to you. Would you just hang in here and let me read this? I, Saul of Tarsus, made, one, made my own independent evaluation of this man called Jesus of Nazareth. I investigated his life to see if this leader of the Nazarene cult was worth following. I made my own intelligent evaluation of what he was worth. I was not unfair. I was not unkind. I applied to him all the normal, natural standards by which any life is appraised in any any age. I looked first into his ancestry, and I discovered there was a cloud over his birth right from the start. And as I investigated it, it became quite clear that he was the illegitimate son of a faithless woman who had been taken in by a kind-hearted carpenter and raised as his own son. But he was an outcast from the beginning, and socially 
He was absolutely worth nothing. I investigated his professional standing, and I discovered that he was born of peasant stock. He attended no school. He was raised as a simple carpenter in a village of no standing in Israel. Professionally, he was worth absolutely nothing. As Saul of Tarsus, I investigated his ecclesiastical background. I found that he had sat at nobody's feet. He had been to no seminary. He had no ecclesiastical or theological training. In fact, he was repudiated by the theological authorities of his day. He was nothing but an incorrigible street preacher and a tough rebel rouser. And as far as his professional, ecclesiastical, theological standing is concerned, he is worth absolutely nothing. Fourth, I looked into his standing financially, and I found he had no bank account. He was born in a cave, laid in a barred manger, lived in other people's homes all through his adult life. He was an incorrigible scrounger. He was always borrowing things. He borrowed money to pay his taxes from a fish. He borrowed his clothes from other people. He rode around on a barred donkey. He died on a barred cross, and he was buried in a barred tomb. Financially, from the standpoint of the accumulation of this world's goods, he was worth absolutely nothing. As I investigated and applied to him the normal standards by which any life is evaluated, I discovered that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was absolutely worthless. And there he stood face to face with this man that he had deemed absolutely incorrigible and worthless. And he is saying, Sir, who are you? And he said, Saul, in essence, Saul, I'm not dead. You're dead. But I have come to give you life. And I want you to know that the jaws of the hound of heaven have in their grip the man that's going to change the world. Now you can pick up any history book you want and you can read any account of any kind of earth-changing, life-changing experience, history-changing moment, and you won't find any more dynamic than this one right here. The hound of heaven has found the man who's going to change the world. Now, there were other attending phenomena, verses 7 through 9. Look at those. It says, And the men who traveled with him stood speechless. They heard the voice, but they saw no one. That's kind of spooky. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. Now, you've got to capture that picture. Here was a man who was headed to Damascus to take it by storm. He's going there with the authority of the government behind him, and he's going to wipe out every Christian there. But God had other plans. Man proposes, but God disposes. And when it all was said and done, here was this man who was headed to Damascus, hell-bent to turn that town upside down, and he's having to be led into town as a helpless blind man by the leadership and the help of another. Don't ever mistake it, my friend. God is able to do that with any man. The poet must have had Paul in mind when he said, One by one he took them from me, all the things I valued most, until I was left 
empty-handed, and every glittering toy was lost. I've seen it happen. I've seen those toys that men hold on to in order to reject God, and God one by one just takes them out of their hands and steps on them. And I've seen times when men have put everything else ahead of God, and one by one God takes those things out of their life until nothing is left but Him. And I have seen men like the Apostle Paul who had everything just like they wanted it. They had the world by the tail and God broke them and He took everything out of their life on which they have depended and by which they have trusted until He left them absolutely helpless. Some of you are smiling because you know just exactly what I'm talking about. Now some events after Saul's conversion. Notice this marvelous thing. Beginning of verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, here I am, Lord. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, here's the guy snapping in attention. I'm ready to go. He says, look at this. He said, Lord, and the Lord said to him, Arise. Okay, got it. And go to the street call straight. Check. Inquire at the house of Judas. Check. Got it. For a man from Tarsus named Saul. And then all of a sudden, these, this alarm went off in his mind. Boring, boring, boring. I mean, whoa, he's, all of a sudden, something scares him. I mean, he gasped for breath. Go to the st- city call straight and inquire of a man named Saul. Now, uh, Kenneth Chafin has a has a great little book called The Reluctant Witness in which he captures the idea here from uh, Ananias' um, commissioned by the Lord to go, to, uh, to go see about bringing conversion to the life of Saul. And he says there are three principles to follow here concerning witness. Would you just jot them down parenthetically to the, to the outline? Number one, he says, Fear is natural and can be overcome and used of God. And he said, uh, you know, can you, can you picture these people, can you picture a group of people sitting around in a little group and, and, and they're, they got these visitor's cards and all of a sudden one of these cards turns up, Saul of Tarsus. Can you imagine the, the fear that must have gripped those guys? Would it surprise you to tell you that whenever we go out on Monday night, I'm scared too? And sometime I've probably prayed, as most of you have prayed secretly, when you ring that doorbell, Lord, please don't let them be home. You know, have you prayed that prayer? Fear is natural, and it can be overcome, and it can be used of God. Point number two is the thing to remember, this thing to remember, that God is already at work in the lives of those to whom He sends us. Verse 17, look at that. And he said, And Ananias departed, entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you. Let me tell you, doesn't matter who you go to see, doesn't matter who you try to witness to, God has already been there before you in some way. Everybody that needs this word tonight, that needs the gospel, that needs Jesus, God has already dealt with in some way. 
And I've known some guys that were pretty tough. You know, I mean, they had this real tough veneer on, on the outside, and they were pretty hard nuts to crack. But every one of them, God has already dealt with. And you look around you and you find the least likely candidate for the gospel, for Jesus. And you know that God's compassion is broader than your own narrow concerns. And you know that God has already been dealing that man's heart. There's a third thing to remember. And that is that God has plans for the lives of those to whom we go. Look at verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. Who would have ever thought it? He's a chosen instrument of mine. Who could ever dreamed that that neighbor, your wildest dreams, you would, have, you would never pick out that neighbor is God's chosen instrument for a special purpose. Just think about that. You Sunday school teachers, you watching that little old guy in your class that can't be still, shooting those spitballs across the room, and you're thinking, if I could just get through this year and get him out of here, you know. Mrs. J. O. Bowden just kept on loving me. God has a plan for every person to whom we go. And tomorrow night some of us will be out knocking on doors and we'll keep in mind that somebody out there, that we, behind one of those doors, God has a special plan for them, for Durant. Now notice this plan God had for Saul. He said, I want him to go and bear my name before the Gentiles, wonderful, and kings greater, and the sons of Israel, the Jews. But notice this last thing. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Did you know that sometimes God's plan for our life is that we bear His name in suffering? It's easy to bear His name to the Gentiles. Easier to bear His name before kings and, and Jews. It's pretty difficult to bear His name in suffering, but sometimes God's special plan for your life is to bear His name in the midst of suffering. And so that's the vision that Ananias had. There's a contact. Look at this contact, verse 17. And Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, he said, underline, Brother Saul. Now I want you to know that's a, a dynamite description of the power of God's redeeming love. Now here was a man who may have killed his best friend, been responsible for the death of his own son perhaps. Who knows? Certainly he had been the one who had been stirring up the problems in the church. And as soon as he got into his presence, he called him brother. Only God's grace can do that. Only God's redeeming grace can enable you to look upon a man like Saul is a brother. He can do it. Brother Saul. Somebody told about a revival meeting. They were preaching. And they were having testimonies at the end of that revival meeting. And a lady got up and said, a Negro lady, she got up and said, what this meeting has meant to me is this. I found the Lord and He helped me 
to forgive the man who killed my brother. Only God can do that. Fanny Crosby, that great hymn writer, puts it like this in the third stanza of that great hymn. Down in the human heart, crushed by the tempter, feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Touched by a loving heart, wakened by kindness, cards that were broken will vibrate once more. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. All some people need is just the hand of somebody who will call him a brother. I want you to know that all some people need is just for you to put your hands on them and call them brother. And then there, was a, there is a relationship. The Scripture says that, Anna, that uh, Saul stayed with his disciples. Look in verse uh, 19. Now for several days he was with the disciples and ministered to them. And verse 20 talks about the proclamation. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. Had to sure eat crow. You talk about genuine repentance. That's a complete reversal. The Apostle Paul was headed north and God turned him south. And the very thing he denied was the very thing he preached. They're just two Gospels. One Gospel denies Jesus and the other proclaims Him, Son of God. There's no middle ground. Now what is the application? The application is three. We'll get these and then we'll quit. Number one, the living Christ is at work in this world. The living Christ is at work in this world. And even though Saul was headed down to Damascus to do his work, Jesus had other plans because he is alive and at work in the world. Secondly, the Lord knows the right man for the right place. Had it been our choice, we would have never chosen Saul of Tarsus to be the minister to the Gentiles, to the kings. Before this man died, Caesar had heard the gospel. But God knows the right man for the right place. And third, God will keep on seeking you until He finds you. You can't escape Him. You get behind the door and He'll just keep on knocking. The psalmist said, I can flee to the uttermost part of the sea, and thou art there. I can make my bed in death, and thou art there. If I ascend into heaven, I hear him there. He'll just keep on until he finds you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great conversion of a man named Saul. And because of that conversion, we're here in this very place. Oh, what we owe that moment when He met you face to face. Some of us can remember tonight that heart-pounding moment when we came face to face with the one we so desperately did not want to meet and made our decision either for Him or against Him. Some face that same decision tonight. Jesus is among us. 
And he, all, he enters this room and walks up and down these aisles, these pews, to say, What are you going to do with me? I pray, Father, that in this moment that remains for us together, those of us who have never come to decide for Jesus Christ will decide for Him today. Those of us who have been following afar off will suddenly realize that God's plan for us is to follow Him, to be the brothers that lead others to Him. Bless now this invitation, we pray in Jesus' name. The invitations tonight are these. First invitation is for you to come to the place where Saul of Tarsus came to say, Lord, what will you want me to do? Here I am. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want you to be my Savior. I want, I want what you have for me. I want to be saved. Have you ever been saved? Have you ever given your heart and life to Jesus Christ? Have you ever invited Him into your heart and life? Have you ever made that commitment of your faith to Christ? And the invitation is for you to come, if God is leading you, to say, I want to place my life in the church, this church. And that's God's plan for me at this point in my life. Why don't we stand and sing? We invite you to come if God leads you to do that.